Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? We got a super fun show today. We're crossing some borders with our returning guest, Kevin Carter, founder and CIO of EMQQ Global. In today's episode, Kevin pounds the table for India's tech sector. He covers the demographic trends, the India tech stack, comparisons to China 15 years ago, and the current Indian stock valuations. He also explains why environmental risks are something to keep an eye on in India. Check out the link in the show notes for Kevin's first appearance on the show, which is a great listen before this episode. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Kevin Carter. Kevin, my friend, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back. Where do we find you today? I'm in Lafayette, California, 15 miles east of San Francisco. One of our mutual favorite destinations on the planet, Lake Tahoe. When's your next trip up there, man? I'll be going up this weekend. Last time we talked to you and listeners, I would actually highly recommend to listen to the first episode with Kevin because we go into his background, which is pretty interesting. We talk a lot about China and it's a pretty good part one to this episode. So we'll put it in the show note links. Maybe we'll publish it in the feed again just to to have both there. We're going to hit on a different topic today. But in the meantime, you know, we had one of your partners and mentors over the year on the podcast Burton Malkiel, who listeners will certainly know that name. And we were joking because we said, Burton, give us, give us a little, give us a little something to ask Kevin on the show. And he says, did you know, when we were traveling around the emerging markets, Kevin's a bit of a card player. So I would say, what does that mean? Is that bridge blackjack? Are you a, uh, craps gambler? What's the story? You just doing your own due diligence in Macau? That's funny. I have been to Macau. It's hard to find a blackjack table in Macau, and blackjack's the game I like to play. But Burton and I, Burton likes blackjack, and he's got, he plays by the rules. He's got his, his rules. If you, I don't know if you asked him for his rules, but he'll, he'll give them to you. I can't remember what they are exactly. I don't play by those rules, 
I play a little bit more by gut with some math as well. But yes, we're in Australia together for some presentations about China, and we played at the Star Casino in Sydney is where Burton taught me his rules of blackjack. I think we both walked out with the same amount of money, but my, my, my was a little bit more volatile. I think every young person goes through a moment in time where there's this attraction to this concept of the martingale. And very quickly, you learn a lot about bet sizing as a gambler, wherein listeners, if you don't know the martingale, it's essentially you double down every time you lose. And theoretically, if you have an infinite bankroll, you'll never lose because eventually you'll win. The problem comes, you learn a very quick lesson in the power of exponentials because very quickly, if you lose five, 10 in a row, the bet size gets more than any bankroll anyone will ever have. But I think that's kind of a, that's a fun lesson. Gambling, you know, as long as you don't go broke, and even then it can be a good lesson. There's so many good lessons in thinking about position sizing and, and how to play and odds. That's right. Similar to short selling, where you have 100% upside and unlimited downside. And, the, and your bet gets bigger as it goes, you know, unlike a long position, you know, which gets smaller, it gets bigger. One of my all-time early favorite podcast guests was the, you know, the godfather of blackjack card counting, Ed Thorpe, also one of the best hedge fund, performing hedge fund managers of all time, who uh, the original Beat the Dealer and Beat the Market books. Listeners, you can go find an old copy. They're, they're certainly classics. Well, let's talk about emerging markets, you know, like many cycles, this cycle feels like in the stock markets, they're continuing to emerge, I think is a percentage of world market cap, you know, we're in the low teens. But when I talk to advisors over the past number of years, and Goldman has come up with some stats on this, I think the, the average allocation sits down around like two or 3% as a percentage of their stock portfolio. So big underweight. Talk to me a little bit about how you see them broadly, and then we'll start to, to dial in more specifically to one country in particular. You know, I tell people there's really two things to know about investing in emerging markets. The first is that the thing that is emerging are the people, right? You've got six and a half billion people, and they're moving up. They're emerging, and they want stuff. They want more and better food, more and better clothing. They want appliances. They want to go to movies and take vacations and they want a vehicle and they want their kids to go to Harvard. And that's the most important thing. And, and that that's a very long one directional secular trend that has been very well documented. And so, you know, if you're investing in emerging markets, it's my belief that that is what you should be trying to capture. The second thing about emerging markets is that there's a big problem. And the problem is the index itself, the MSCI index, which we use to track the performance of emerging markets has a lot of problems. And the first and biggest problem, which I encountered my first five minutes into, you know, being part of emerging markets 18 years ago, is that the emerging markets have a lot of these government-owned banks and oil companies, these state-owned enterprises that are inefficient. They have conflicts of interest with you as an investor, and the governance isn't very good and the corruption is everywhere. And so you, what you find, and I, I, you know, when I got pulled into China 18 years ago, 
thanks to Burton, the first thing I did was I asked for a list of all the companies in the China ETF because we had these investors that were interested in investing in China after hearing Burton talk about China. And I assumed we would use the ETF that iShares had. There was only one China ETF back then. It was the FXI. And But since I'm an Omaha person, I wanted to see what were the companies. I don't care about the name of the ETF. I want to know what are the businesses we're going to own. And so I asked for that list. And that's when Burton pulled me aside and explained to me that 80% of the index was government-owned banks and oil companies and how the you know, government-owned banks would make loans to companies that were already bankrupt, basically, to, to you know, keep the employees on, you know, paid. And so that's a big problem, and I don't have a solution for it. And, if you know, a lot of investors have given up on emerging markets, and they have very small allocations because they've had a lot of promise for a long time, but no one's really got any real return from investing there. In fact, I think the 12 or 13-year return is about 25%. And I know that for the 10 years ended with 2022, the earnings growth was negative. So, you know, in, in Omaha, investing is really simple. The reason businesses have value is because they make profits for the owners. And the only way to make the value go up is to make the profits go up. And that hasn't happened in the traditional indexes, which are, again, full of banks and oil companies and, and mineral companies that are state-owned and, and not really, you know, for-profit in a traditional sense. You know, we spend a lot of time probably way too much for this to be healthy and beneficial to our download statistics. But we spend a lot of time talking about market cap investing and how it is an interesting and good first step. It enabled some things in the 70s. But as far as an investing methodology, you know, can become quite suboptimal uh, given, you know, some conditions, particularly times when things go totally bananas. You know, the interesting part that I feel like is one of the biggest dislocations for me when talking about emerging markets, because I love my polls on Twitter. And we'll ask people, you know, what percentage of world GDP is emerging markets? And almost everyone says zero to 20 percent, 20 to 40 percent. And, you know, uh, we, we both know that that's totally wrong. You know, emerging markets end up being most of world GDP, which surprises so many people. And then looking on all the various statistics, like when we were talking about Macau earlier, you know, and you Google Macau Casino annual revenue and Vegas annual revenue, very quickly people will be surprised that it's, you know, Macau is multiples of, of Las Vegas already. So just the scale of emerging markets is really staggering, particularly for, you know, most people who have never done any traveling, which is, of course, most, if not um, many, if not most. So you and I sat down to dinner and in retrospect, we probably should have gone to an Indian restaurant. There's some good ones around here, as opposed to the one we went to, which was good. But you were very excited and animated, which is sort of your natural state. But give me the lead in. What was the initial attractant to what you see as a, a pretty big opportunity here? Well, nine years ago, first identified was the fact that all of those billions of consumers in emerging markets were going to get their first ever computer in form of a you know Android-based smartphone. And that once they had those, you know, pocket-sized supercomputers, they were going to get on the internet. And that because they didn't have bank accounts and they didn't have automobiles and there was no Target stores, that they would leapfrog and become, you know, digital consumers. And that, you know, because we've had such a evolutionary experience with information and with technology, we don't realize that, you know, not not everybody else in the world is, has traveled that path as we have. And so all of a sudden 
what I was seeing was that all of these billions of consumers were were going online and getting their first bank account. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a traditional bank account. It was a smartphone based place to keep your money and make payments. And and again, I, I first saw that in China. I mean, that was, you know, started happening in China. I launched my, as you may know, I launched a number of China ETFs with Guggenheim, but we launched a China technology ETF CQQQ probably 13 years ago to capture that story, you know, the, the online consumer. And then, I, you know, I saw that it was evolving and it wasn't just China. It was, you know, Mercado Libre, uh, which went public out of South America. That was, you know, the Amazon.com of Brazil and Mexico. And now, you know, what we see is that, you know, since this story started in China, e- China's e-commerce market, you know, it's the largest in the world by far. So, you know, China is an emerging market in a traditional sense, but in terms of the digitization story and e-commerce, China is the most developed country in the world by far. And so what we started to see was that, well, there's the other 45 emerging markets. They are basically where China was 15 years ago. So if you think about, you know, consumers and the Internet and, and personal computers, that was basically started in the United States in the year 2000. Like, when could you really have a computer at your house, get on the Internet and do some business on the Internet? That basically started in the year 2000. And we saw this 15-year S-curve as the FANG stocks took over our lives and our stock market. The China wave, the second wave, was basically right behind us, 2005 to 2020, Alibaba and Tencent leading the way. That now what's coming is the third wave. And this is the other five and a half billion people that are not in China. And India is the biggest part of the story. And South Asia, if you you know include uh, Pakistan and, and Bangladesh to the west and east, this is almost two billion people and about 850 million Gen Z. So this is the most fertile ground for this story going forward. And India stands alone in my mind right now, not only as the biggest opportunity in emerging markets, but maybe the best opportunity in emerging markets, you know, for in terms of a single country that we've seen. And it, it's because of a number of reasons that have just lined up and they're lined up at a time when you can now get a $12 smartphone brand new in India. When I saw you for dinner a few months ago, I would tell you you could get a $50 smartphone brand new in India. This is an Android-based smartphone. But just uh, seven weeks ago, Reliance Geo introduced a $12 smartphone, a $12 supercomputer. So whereas China, when they got online, they were on PCs, and they, like us, migrated onto the smartphone. Well, these people are skipping the PC altogether, and, and the India story is just incredibly compelling. Let's dig in. So you have the sort of obvious demographic. I feel like most investors can appreciate that. You know, you just mentioned there's multiples more Gen Z than there are Americans in total. You know, just the scale of the amount of people, the density. I've never been to India. I really want to go. So you can help be my tour guide. But tell me a little bit about what the macro sort of picture kind of walk down what took you from, okay, this is curious and interesting to, okay, this is actually really interesting. You know, Matt, we three years ago, we only had one half of 1% of EMQQ was in India. And we only had three publicly traded companies 
But what I saw was that there was dozens of unicorns that were lined up to IPO. So I'd originally planned to go to India in the spring of 2020, but then the COVID came and I was unable to go. But but the IPOs happened. There were 23 Indian internet IPOs in the first 18 months of the COVID, but all of them went public in India. So they didn't get much coverage here. And what was given me an incredible amount of conviction is the last nine months. I've basically devoted all of the last nine months to a deep, deep dive into all things India, including the internet opportunity there, the digital opportunity that we have tapped into. And and as you know, we launched INQQ, the India-only product, you know, last year, as soon as there was enough companies. So once there was over 20 companies, enough to make a diversified, you know, portfolio we, is when we registered and launched. So the story uh, for India, which, by the way, this, this is not a, a secret. There's almost every major investment firm has some report outlining the bullish part of the India story. But there's basically eight bullet points. First, it's now the largest country in the world. It passed China in April, according to the World Bank. So 1.4 billion people in India. And if you look at the, the chart as it goes out, it's going to get bigger and bigger than China because it's young. It has the youngest economy, a major economy. They're about 11 and a half years younger on average than China. So you've got 600 million people that are just getting into their early part of their you know, prime. You have the fastest growing major economy. Most of that growth is coming in a swelling middle class that will, in fact, pass China and have more consumption within a decade by most estimates. And you've got the fastest growing e-commerce market. India is growing just a little faster than Brazil, about 28% a year. And finally, and this is the part that I didn't appreciate completely until recently. India has a government that's a democracy, which a lot of people favor. And it is a democracy that is led by a government that has basically gone all in on digitization. And Modi, who's been the leader for the last decade, his whole platform is Digital India. And so I knew that they had done a number of initiatives to, to help the digitization of the country, but I had no idea how well developed these systems and uh, this you know digital public infrastructure had become, which is an abstract thing, which I hope we'll go into in detail. But the so you have all those kind of basic things, big, young, you know, just the checklist. And it's hard to, with words or pictures or numbers to explain the scale of this opportunity, the sheer number of humans, the density. Well, you have an actual pretty good chart. And some of the stats we, we've talked about earlier, I think, hit home. But you have a good chart that we'll put in the show notes on on Bangladesh. But you said the size of Bangladesh, and then if half of the U.S. moved to Illinois, is the population of Bangladesh, which is just like puts it in perspective, the density. No, no, it's staggering. Mean, there's 170 million people, and it's the size of Illinois. It's also a third of it's always flooded. So it's basically two-thirds the size of Illinois. And you'd have to take the third through ninth largest countries and combine them to get to the, the size of India. And it's very, very young. It's very dense. And it's it's pretty chaotic. I mean, unlike China, which is homogenous, 95% Han Chinese, India's got 1,600 different languages. And 24 of them, the government publishes every document in. So there's 1,580 you know, languages that aren't even recognized officially. So it's incredibly diverse. 
and it's very dense. The other thing that India has going for it now also is infrastructure. When I got involved with China 18 years ago, it was basically tied with India. I mean, it was a little bit ahead of India in terms of its GDP, GDP per capita, but not very far. But what you could see was China had begun this massive infrastructure investment to build the world's best infrastructure, high-speed rail, airports, highways, high-speed trains, and seaports to load up the manufactured products and get them uh, on a boat. And while they were doing this, India was mired in bureaucracy and basically sat on its hands and didn't really invest in its infrastructure. And China sort of blasted ahead and basically quadrupled the size of their economy plus uh, in that period. Well, India didn't really get moving. And the bureaucracy that the British left India, you know, were, I think, largely to blame. Well, right now, Modi is the leader of India, and he's been the leader for the last 10 years. And so he's finishing up his second five-year term. He will almost certainly get another five-year term when they vote next year, and a fourth term even if he wants it. There's no term limits. And he's loved. He's got an 80% approval rating. Not everyone likes him, but the vast majority do. And he has got the government organized and efficient and very businesslike. And that includes the infrastructure investments. So the, all of the infrastructure numbers have exploded under Modi in the last 10 years. They're currently in the middle of a trillion and a half dollar comprehensive infrastructure plan that involves modernizing the pretty extensive rail network they have, um, electrifying it, adding uh, hundreds of new stations, modernizing the stations. They're building their own high-speed trains now. They'll deliver 400 of those trains in the next several years, connecting the cities, obviously, with the high-speed rail. The Indian air travel market's going to explode. That's one of the early luxury spends of people as they move up the consumer ladder. They want to go see the sites of their own country. So the domestic air travel market will explode in India. It's already exploding. The airports are going to triple by the end of 2025. And so all parts of the infrastructure now are catching up. I mean, back you know, 17, 18 years ago, they had problems with the power grid to the factories and they had brownouts and so forth. They've fixed most of that, and they're making big investments. Now, and a lot of this has to do with this China plus one strategy, right? Trying to find alternative, you know, supply chains and alternative suppliers so everyone's not totally dependent on China. And that's probably a practical thing to want to do anyhow. But the reality is China's got the best infrastructure and they're able to make the best products, get them on a boat, uh, better than anybody. And and the it's the port capacity that's going to be a bottleneck because China's port capacity is 10 times India's and it apparently takes a long time to build a port. So you'll see manufacturing jobs go to India. Apple's going to make a quarter of their iPhones, the latest iPhones by the end of 2025 by estimates. So the infrastructure is finally there and they're really taking it seriously and it shows. Um, and it does look and feel like Shanghai and you know China did when I first went there 17 years ago. But now here's the third part of this setup that India has. That, and this is the part that I alluded to earlier that is it's unique in the world. No other country developed or emerging has this. And it's what they call the digital public infrastructure or the India stack. And most of the components of this digital public infrastructure, while abstract to me, 
I knew what they were, but I didn't quite appreciate how they had evolved and developed. It started in, in 2009 when the Indian government had decided it was finally time to create a national identity card so that everybody in the country would have a unique 12 digit number on a card given you know, officially from the government. Because one of the problems they were having with developing was that nobody had identification. Very few people had driver's licenses or passports or any form of official government identification. And as you can imagine, that, you know, it's hard to develop your economy when nobody can prove who they are. They asked the chairman of Infosys, Nandan Nilkani, if he would be in charge. Mr. Nilkani said, look, I'll, I'll be in charge of this, but if we're going to do this, I'm going to use a lot of technology because, as he you know, said, I didn't see as much technology as I would have expected when I helped the people in Bangalore. And now if I'm going to do this, we're not only going to use the best technology of today, but we're going to look to the future. And not only will we give everybody a, a card, everybody will also have their 12-digit number linked to their eyeball scan and fingerprints. So every number has a human being tied to it, biometric data. Now, when they launched it in 2010, it was totally voluntary. You didn't have to sign up. So I knew about this program. I have the logo in my presentation. It's the national identity number. That's going to be good for the economy. But I didn't quite follow its development. And then... About three years later, they put another layer onto the stack. So the foundation, Autohar, then they put a KYC, know your customer layer on top. And with this program, they started initiatives so that you could go into any bank. If you were in the Autohar system, you could walk into a bank and open a bank account in three minutes with no paperwork, just by putting your fingers on a pad and looking into the camera. In 2016, they launched this other initiative, the Unified Payments Interface, or UPI. Again, this got a lot of coverage. It was part of Digital India. I put the logo in my presentation about India, but I didn't really follow the development. But the headline of the UPI was that it would allow instantaneous, completely free transfer of money from any person to any other person or business. No delay, no friction. I could send you $10, you could send it back to me, we could do it 20,000 times, it would still be $10. So I said, okay, well, but to be totally honest, the main thing I felt about that program was a concern because one of our companies that we talked about, it hadn't gone public yet, but it was the Indian payments leader, Paytm which I started featuring in my presentation after uh, Berkshire Hathaway invested in the company about eight years ago and it was still private. The next part of this is not part of the digital public infrastructure, but it, it effectively acts like it. And this was sort of the big bang moment. This is a private enterprise called Geo or the Geo Network. This is the largest phone carrier, the you know, mobile phone subscriptions. And Geo is part of Reliance Industries. And what happened the same year that the UPI was introduced, Mukesh Ambani, who runs Reliance Industries, had made a very decisive decision that Geo needed to go all digital and focus their, you know, that, that Reliance needed to go 
big on the digitization of India story. And their first and very bold move was to buy the only 4G license, the only 4G spectrum in the country, and invest $25 billion to build a countrywide state-of-the-art 4G network that was also you know, contemplated 5G and 6G coming down the line. Now, at the time, there was about a dozen other carriers, and all of them were on 2G, and they were all locked in a price war, and their balance sheets were terrible, and they couldn't even invest to keep their 2G running very well. And so Geo comes in, and then they, they launch in, in the November of 2006, same year as the UPI, and their pitch is pretty simple. We have the only 4G network. If you sign up with us, we're going to give you free voice calls forever, unlimited, and we'll give you six months of free data. And then after your six months is over of free data, we'll still be the only 4G network and we'll also have the lowest prices. And so that was their offer. And then the, the goal that Mukesh put forward was that they would sign up 100 million people by the end of the next year. So by the end of 2017. And that was a pretty bold goal. And it was especially bold because back then, if you wanted to get a new mobile phone, it took about three hours on average when you went to the phone store because you would again have to prove who you were. And they would have to, you know, verify you manually. When Reliance Geo launched, they used the Autohar system because it's open to pe for people to use. And in their stores, that they had basically the eyeball reader and the and the fingerprint reader, and they opened a hundred million accounts in four months, with an average turn time of five minutes down from three hours. So this was the first time the commercial power of this India stack really made itself visible. So now if you fast forward to today and what's happened in the last three and a half years, because COVID accelerated this more than anybody in any other country, that mobile payments have exploded. That UPI platform now accounts for 40% of the world's real-time instant money transfers. And the slope of the curve is still at like 45, 50% growth. And what has happened in addition to that is the government also took out the high denomination bills and they simplified the tax code. And so seven years ago, the Indian economy was 95% cash-based, paper-based cash. Now it's 75% digital. So it went from 4.5% digital to 75% digital. The, again, the payments numbers have exploded. The tax revenues to the government have exploded because everyone's now in the proper financial system, not dodging taxes and, and working off of cash. So you've taken the, what would have taken 60 years in a, you know, the old world to modernize their financial system, and they've done it in seven years. So this India stack, nobody else on the planet has this. And interestingly, now Nandan Nokani, the leader of all of this, has he's now offering it up to other countries. In fact, several 
Countries have signed up to take a copy of the UPI, including France. Autohar will probably be a little harder to sell people because of the privacy. But anyhow, this digital stack is a secret weapon. And people, I don't think, appreciate it and understand it because I didn't understand it or appreciate it until recently. And it's not done. And the, the other kind of important element to India is you say, okay, well, if you're going to have e-commerce, what is the current commerce? Wait, where are people getting their stuff today? And in South Asia, in India specifically, they get their stuff from 13 million mom and pop stores. So 90% of all consumer spending happens in these little, you know, like a bodega in New York City. It's a small shop that has 200 items, you know, what you need every day. And again, there's 13 million of these stores and they've you know, more um, formal retail, you know, the big box stores have been introduced, but they've been not been able to take very much market share. And so what I think India is going to end up with is a hybrid where the Karana stores are going to become digitized. It's already happening. In fact, Paytm, who I referenced earlier, it really has a stronghold in those merchant market. This Paytm's found a way to make money. They make loans. Now they become the banker for the uh, Corona store owners and make loans. So I think what you're going to end up with is a, is a highly digital mom and pop, um, hyper local e-commerce. Where and, and there's a new layer to the stack to drive this. It's called the ONDC. And this is the latest, again, led by Nanda Nilkani. And the ONDC is the Open Network for Digital Commerce. And it's it's designed to help further integrate those mom and pops into the country's e-commerce. I can't explain it well. And I don't think if you, you know, there's a great Morgan Stanley interview with this man, Nandan Nilkani. It's like a 12 minute interview where he talks about all of these things from the beginning and then looks forward to what's coming down the pipe. But he says that this particular new program might be the most powerful thing that they've introduced. It's hard for me to believe anything could be more powerful than that foundation. But well, it's fascinating, you know, I mean, when you talk about this, listening to it is incredibly optimistic and obvious and exciting. And then you do it through like the American lens of Big Brother and I don't know if it's even libertarianism. It's just like wants the government out of their life, like the prospect of doing something like this in a country like U.S., I mean, I put it at near zero. That seems right. That seems like <laughs> right. the right number. Rounds to zero is the phrase from Oppenheimer. It's funny because I wonder like what part of the story when we arrive at analyzing these opportunities and investments, we come with our preconditioned bias of, you know, thinking of the world in American terms or Western terms or whatever. And then it's a totally different perspective in India that actually Whereas we may think it's a potential, everyone sees the China, like big brother, you're walking through the intersection and, you know, you know, zap your face and then forever you're shamed and in a database. But, you know, I think on the flip side of that, there's a ton of positives and opportunity that seem like in the Indian example is pretty interesting. I think it's just getting started. I think there's, there are and again, when you hear this man Nandan talk about it, you know he's he said like a lot of the stuff they had no idea, but they were how it was going to work out. They just knew it would be powerful. And like I said, I, I think it's a secret weapon. And I, you know, for many reasons, including what you just mentioned, like a lot of countries, the the population is going to look at that as a Big Brother type of thing and not agree to it, at least not anytime soon. But 
and maybe that was part of the success with Audahar was voluntary. Nobody had to do it. So, but I think people saw that there was a benefit, right? You could prove who you were easily by just looking at a camera. And just as, you know, using your QR code to pay for something is better than using cash. There's a lot of other, other than commerce reasons that that might be a valuable thing, or at least a kind of a liquefier of things. You know, you think about like going through security lines in, in airports or what have you that can be accelerated with that platform that, again, I think is, is quite unique. The other thing that I think is interesting about this, and, and Nandan Nilkani talks about this as well, but, you know, India doesn't have a very well-developed consumer credit market. And I'm not an economist, but the, what I've seen from some economists when they look at India's consumer credit market and, you know, if it starts to grow and look more like a, a developed world's consumer credit market where more people have credit and use it, that that could add, you know, two or three percentage points to their GDP growth on an annual basis. And that's one of the things now that Nandan's talking about is, well, now that you have this, what he calls informational collateral, that it will set the foundation for a potentially very large growth in consumer credit, which then accelerates the GDP growth, which, you know, the estimates are six, six and a half percent. And by the way, I mean, that's one of the other things and I've have made over the years a number of friends that are Indian investors and they're more experienced than me, certainly in India, but they're more experienced than me also just in years. And many of them have been very successful in venture capital or hedge funds, private equity. And, you know, and I've tried to figure out like, okay, what am I missing here? Right? What can go wrong? What are the, what are the, what are the things that are, I'm not understanding? And one of these individuals who has probably the, you know, in many ways, a, a, a incredible pedigree, Wharton, early venture investor in India, you know, he's, he's the real deal. And he said, the thing people are missing is we can probably grow faster. And why not? You know, China grew at 9, 10, 11% for a while. I don't, you know, why, why can't India do that? And I think, again, I, I'm not an economist, but I, I feel like the power of this digital platform they had in and of itself could be worth some incremental GDP growth rate. Just if you think about the, you know, the working capital cycles for people when they're instantly moving money. So it's going to be an exciting, you know, 20 years in India and, and it looks really good. You've heard about value investing from the likes of Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, and Seth Klarman, but have you thought about applying those same principles of value investing to fixed income? The Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker symbol TYLD, invests tactically across a variety of fixed income sectors and REITs based on yield spreads to U.S. Treasury bills. When yield spreads are narrow, TYLD intends to hold U.S. Treasury bills. When yield spreads are sufficiently wide, TYLD intends to invest and hold positions in various global fixed income sectors and REITs. Visit cambriafunds.com slash TYLD to learn more. Again, that's cambriafunds.com slash TYLD to learn more. Cambria funds are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of capital. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, ETF info, or by visiting the website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. International investments may involve risk of capital loss not associated with domestic investing. Bonds and bond funds are subject to interest rate risk and will decline in value amid rising interest rates. So let's talk a little bit about 
the investment opportunity set. You know, I think there's a general apathy when it comes to emerging markets. Part of that, as we know, is just investors' sentiment is always drawn to, you know, what is going up the most. But one of the reasons I do angel investing is with the hope that trying to stay current and hopefully see around the corner a little bit. And I think we talked about it at dinner, but I said a very large number of my startup investments over the past five years in particular, but really over the last 10 have been ex-US and some of the best performers have been ex-US, Latin America, Africa, which we did a whole series on on the podcast, but then India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And those three in particular you see these exponential traction opportunities, like you mentioned, where you're going from, you know, yellow pen paper to all of a sudden a digital adoption and the numbers just very quickly become staggering. So it's definitely been interesting and curious to watch. As you talk about this message and you've done it before talking about, you know, these markets, what, what are kind of the biggest pushbacks from investors on why they may not be interested or why they would be not quite yet or turned off by this opportunity? You know, a lot of our kind of narrative of our China or of our India research is, you know, is India like China 15 years ago? And as I mentioned that the GDPs were about the same, there wasn't smartphones back then, so we can't look at smartphone penetration, but but it does look, you know, statistically like China. And then there's anecdotal things. You have my second trip to Beijing was 15 years ago, and I visited the brand new Apple store, the first Apple store that was opened in China. And uh, two weeks after I left India, the first two Apple stores opened there. But now, the, as I may have mentioned earlier, the problem is if you had invested in China 15 years ago, looked and said, all right, I think China is going to grow a lot. I'm going to buy the China ETF. Well, you were right. The Chinese economy grew 409%, but the FXI went down 51. So you lost half your money. So now the question is, okay, well, you want to invest in India. The PE multiples for the broad indexes are pretty high. They're the highest in the world, according to the Schiller-Cape ratios that Burton likes to use. So, you, you know, as we say in Omaha, you pay a high price for a cheery consensus. The fact that India has all these positive things, that it's not involved with Russia, that it's not involved with China and Taiwan. It's like a safe haven in a way, you know, amongst emerging markets where you've got wars going on and, and you know, people think China's going to do something with Taiwan. There's all that stuff. India sort of stands alone. And so, frankly, we're finding pretty good reception for it. I mean, we didn't talk about the product for really the first year until I went and saw what I saw and came back and sort of processed it all. But we've had some, you know, again, coming off of a very, very small base, we've had some flows and people are interested. But the, you know, one of the challenges that we face as a business is that, you know, our existing, you know, primary product, EMQQ, it's available at places like Morgan Stanley and UBS, where, you know, with advisors that we know. And these, the India product is still small and it's not available in those places. So the, the main pushback we get is, I can't buy it because it's not approved on my broker's platform. So good. Just go open up a personal PA account and uh, you can buy it in your personal. 
we're doing what we can to find people that can buy it. But it's it's also had a you know the performance this year is pretty good. It's up about twenty percent. You know, there was a, as you know, there was a pretty significant correction in our main product, EMQQ, and that was a lot because of the China tensions and the delisting risk and the, you know, government crackdown, both of which are done and not really, you know, I don't think of them the way most people do. I think they were just noise, and they're, but they're also both behind us. But the China stocks weren't the only ones that go down. The India's, you know, all the Indian internet companies also went down about 75% from their top. Now, when we launched, they were already down a lot. So, our, you know, our track record's negative, but it would have been, you know, a, a bloodbath if we had launched, you know, nine months earlier. I will say that um, the valuations right now for the INQQ portfolio, I think are very compelling. When I look at the, you know, the PE for the Indian stock market, so if you bought the, the, the iShares India product, either the Nifty 50 or the MSCI, they're basically the same. INDA and INDY, those products right now, the, the, the peg ratios are very high. I, I like to use the peg ratio. That's the only ratio I care about. And I, I like to look at it two ways. I like to look at the PE over the revenue growth rate because that top line to me is the most pure form of growth. I mean, you could have a business that's even shrinking and buy back stock and you know otherwise grow your earnings, but that can't go on forever. So I look at the PE to revenue growth first. When I look at the PE to revenue growth for the INDA, the INDY, it's like three and a half, right? You've got like a, a 21 PE and a and a growth rate of like 6%. Now, the INQQ has got the same PE and it's got a growth rate that's three times that. So the PEG ratio is 1.28 or two, you know, call it 1.3. So while the India market broadly, the Nifty 50 and the MSCI, they, they reflect a very rosy outlook with those three and a half pegs. These companies, which aren't, they're not included in the indexes, most of them, have a peg on a revenue basis that's 1.3. On an earnings growth basis, the peg ratio for INDA and INDY isn't as bad. It's like 1.7-ish. But the peg ratio for the INQQ portfolio is 0.98. So... You know, I'm a long-term investor, and if you can buy the digitization of India at a peg ratio of one today, and you've got 10 or 15 years, I think you'll do pretty well. Well, there's a couple of things that you brought to mind. One is listeners will put a lot. Uh, Kevin's mentioned a lot of resources, PDFs, videos. We got the global CAPE ratios from Barclays, all these things we can, we'll put in the show note links at Mebfaber. Dot com. You know, here's a fun experiment, listeners, to kind of check your biases. You can pull out a piece of paper and write down, see how many you can guess and see how many you can guess in order the world's 10 largest stock markets. And there'll be a couple in there that'll probably surprise you. And there'll be a couple in there that you'll probably get way out of order. I think it's a fun experiment and also to check the, the magnitude of some of these that are maybe already there that you may not think that would be, and even a few that are, don't trade a whole lot. So check it out. When you're talking about China and the performance, I don't know that there's been a country over this past cycle. There's certainly been foreign and emerging countries over the last 40, 50 years that has seen a wider spectrum of agony and ecstasy than China. And the past isn't always prologue to the future, but looking at your fund, 
I was smiling because I'm attracted to stuff that's in drawdowns. That's kind of my thing. But looking your fund in particular, which is more concentrated likely than the broad market cap and index, but the percentile rank, which, you know, has waffled between number one, then it goes to 96, one, 100, two, 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 sorry, when you're one, when you're then 190, 90. So you have this period where it just sort of like the flip-flop of, of people being binary, so excited and optimistic and then so despondent. And it just, the emotional swings on this country would make a random walker blush, I think, to rope Burton into this. But I love the things that are unloved. And the emerging story, my goodness, across the board feels like that. As you look back at traveling through India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, China even, any particular memories or stories that really stand out? It could be from meeting companies, from chatting with investors to government officials, anything that like you're like, wow, this is a, a great story or this was uh, left a big impression? Well, let me speak to the the South Asia part of that. First of all, we started in Dhaka in Bangladesh, which might be the most intense city on the planet. I mean, the density of Bangladesh, you know, we talked about, but the density of Dhaka itself, it just gets hard, you can't put it into words. And the other thing about South Asia is it's quite chaotic. I mean, the streets themselves are sort of emblematic of the whole thing. I mean, you've got you know, donkeys pulling carts, you've got people pulling carts, people pushing carts, cement trucks, bicycles, rickshaws, motorcycle rickshaws, I mean, every everything. And there's just chaos. And, and because of the density of Dhaka, I mean, it's intense. And there were multiple times when we were walking and we literally couldn't move anymore. We could stop and it just a, I wouldn't call it, a, it was a traffic jam, but there were more than just cars involved. And you'd have to step backwards three steps and take two steps to the right just to go forward. So this, uh, I'd say my, my first day in, in Dhaka was quite intense. And I think the, the the things we chose to go see were particularly intense, the whole, you know, the the wholesale market and so forth. The Dharavi slum in India is also fascinating. This is where the slumdog millionaire came from. It's just a, one of the densest places on the planet. There's almost a million people. It's like a third of a square mile or, you know, it's very small and dense. What I didn't appreciate is it's basically a business as well. I mean, that basically one side of the, of the slum, they bring in waste products and plastic remnants and so forth. And they go through the alleys and there's all these little artisan or craftsmen or whatever, you know, what the appropriate word is, but they're taking you know, they're breaking up things made of plastic and separating them. And then the next station they're melting and Basically, by the end of the line, you could there are brand new finished backpacks with tags on them that have been all made, you know, between the the junk pile and the end of the you know the other side of the slum. It was very fascinating, and also this is a uh, very timely because Tata is getting ready to redevelop the uh, Duravi slum, which will be interesting because it's you know like the. The, the Hutongs and the Lilongs in, in China, they're sort of historic neighborhoods, right? And, the, you know, it's probably a good reason to modernize it. By the way, the real estate prices in the, in the slum are off the charts. So, you know, if you own a house, you already are a slumdog millionaire, basically. So that was interesting. I was going to say, as, you know, as I try to think of the risk to any investment on the macro, on the micro, on the everything, 
by the way, listeners, two really outstanding books. Shantaram, of course, is famous. White Tiger, also an excellent book. It's been made into a show, but the the book, you know, like many, is is probably much better. Are there any things that you think are, I mean, generally something that people ascribe to being a risk for India is the caste system? Is there any sort of political, I mean, you mentioned it's democracy and it seems to be quite a bit more stable. I mean, is there anything that is on the list, whether it's for you or for other people that are talking about, I mean, China, there's so many kind of front of mind ones with like Taiwan and their interactions. But India, you don't, at least I don't see the headlines as much. I'm trying to find the, the risk. I mean, the, the ones that are obvious are, first of all, Modi. I mean, Modi, we, you know, this is a risk. You know, ultimately, one of the things I think we've learned in the last 10 years is it really, it doesn't really matter what form of government you have. If the guy in charge goes crazy or otherwise does things you don't like, then, you know, all bets are off. And it doesn't matter if it's a monarchy or a communist party or a democracy, right? The person in charge can be a problem. Now, the good news is I think Modi's, he's an asset, but, you know, he's not in his 30s. So there's definitely the political risk, the Modi risk. The You know, the country has had other leaders that have left office prematurely for, you know, unplanned reasons. So the definitely there's risk. There's definitely racial tensions. There's up in the very, very far east of the country, there's been a whole lot of racial violence. And they actually, one of the things that India does when they have problems is they shut off the internet. So there's a region, a small region in India where they've had a lot of you know sectarian violence and they haven't had the internet for three months either. One of the other interesting things I did when I was in India is we went and crossed, um, or I went and crossed into Pakistan at the Vaga border, the land border. And it's where the Indian guards and the Pakistani rangers do their ceremonial, you know, march and high, trying to out high step each other. And, um, but we, we flew to Amritsar, which is the main city there. And it's the, it's where the golden temple is, which is the, the center of the Sikh religion, which is an amazing place. The equally as impressive and amazing, I think is the Taj Mahal. But while we were there that afternoon, the internet went out. And what we found out was there's a Sikh separatist that had sprung one of his uh, followers from a jail somewhere and they they shut off the internet so he couldn't communicate with his uh, other separatists. And my colleagues were unable to, you know, book flights to, you know, to get out of town that afternoon. So you got to carry around Elon's Starlink, man. No, I got, I, I have one somewhere, but I didn't bring it with me. But I, I, I crossed the border in time to, to get coverage on the Pakistan side. But the other thing, the other risk that seems pretty clear to me is the environmental risk. I mean, the country is so many of the people live along the, the Ganges River and they have these, they're having very big heat. Like it's like literally, you know, it, it may become uninhabitable. And they've seen a lot of problems in the last few years with extreme, extreme heat in and around Delhi. Pollution is a huge problem all over South Asia as well. And again, a lot of, you know, the water comes from out, you know, down from the Himalayas and there's, probably more environmental risk in India than, than other places. 
So, and, and I think that, you know, that's with a lot of other risks, you don't really know it's a risk until it shows up and you say, oh, yes, that was a risk. But I'd say the you know, political stability, which is good now, but, you know, this this things can change overnight for any number of reasons. And the environmental risk um, seems real. But other than those two main ones, I, you know, it seems like because a lot of the India story is an internal story, whereas the China story was an export driven story. I think what India is going to end up with is a lot more internal growth as opposed to pure export growth, which is what China led with. Well, it's exciting. When we talked last time, you said you were going to help me when we were starting the Kevin Carter Adventure Capitalist Travel Agency to come uh, give some tours. So I'm going to tag along and uh, join you on one of these next time. But first, we'll start with a little boat tour of Tahoe. How's that sound? That sounds great. Also, my friend, best places for people to check out your funds, websites. I don't think you do that much on Twitter. Where do they go? EMQQglobal.com is our uh, website. And then uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kevin T. Carter. And uh, yeah, you'll find us if you want to. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us again today. All right. Thanks, Meb. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.